Listen to these words. Be of good comfort, Mr. Ridley, and play the man. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England as I trust shall never be put out. Be of good comfort, Mr. Ridley, and play the man. These are the words of Hugh Latimer, a 16th century English pastor, to his fellow Englishman and pastor, Nicholas Ridley. He spoke these words to his, uh, his friend shortly before they were burned at the stake for heresy. Both men had been converted from the oppressive and, at this point, um, unbiblical Catholicism of the day into Protestantism with its emphasis on the supremacy of God in Scripture, and specifically Scripture alone. And both men refused to turn from their convictions and willingly gave their lives to tremendous suffering and eventually death. And the question I want us to consider is what compels a person to live this way? What compels a person as they are being literally chained together around a pyre with the light about to be lit to say, you know what, I'm sticking to my guns, I'm believing God, to quote Proverbs, I'm trusting in the Lord with all my might and I'm not leaning on my own understanding, I'm acknowledging God right now and his truth right now. And though my body may fail me in this moment, God is my portion. What does it take for a person to live that way? We're going to think about that. Stand up together. We're going to read Romans chapter 32 through 39. Romans, no, Romans chapter 8, verses 32. Some of you panicked because last week we read through Jonah. So you're like, Romans is 15 chapters. We can't do that today. Um, everyone relax. It's, it's like nine verses. All right. Uh, we'll start in verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. What shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation... This is the word of the Lord to us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you that you are our Savior and Redeemer, and you are generous in your salvation. Father, we thank you that you've blessed us to be your children through the adoption that comes through Jesus Christ. You've given us righteousness from your Son and declared us righteous because of his work. You've given us your Holy Spirit 
who gives us new life and conforms us into the character of your son. You've given us hope that we'll be with you, be with you in heaven and promised that you'll be with us now. God, I pray that you would give us eyes to see and hearts to appreciate how generous you have been to us. Cause us to count our many blessings, to feel their weight. God, I pray that we would not take for granted the salvation work that you have wrought in us. Help us to see with a heavenly perspective that we, that if we have nothing but the love of Christ, we have everything. Help us to know that if we have Christ, we can endure anything. And help us to become people who are grace-filled and generous like you. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen. You can be seated. God is generous. When we think of godliness, I think we often think of things like, honestly, I think many of us grew up thinking of stoicism, just kind of, you know, no hair out of place, no smile on your face. I did not mean to rhyme that, but it works. Thank you. But God is a generous God. As we think about creation, I mean, it's just a side note, but, but if you think about creation, there are many, like, other cultures and other religions have creation stories that always emanate from the need of those beings, those powers, those things that they, they hold to be ultimate, whether it's a, a demigod or a god or a philosophy. There, there's something that, that is needed and out of that need or out of that distress, out of that conflict comes creation. But it's, it's in the, the creation of, 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 of our creation and the story that's in Genesis that we see that it's out of the, the overflow of God's generosity. There is no need in God that he creates, that he willingly creates all of creation so we can participate in, in glorifying him and experiencing his glory. God is a generous God, and we're going to see in in Romans chapter 8, that the generosity of God is marked by his gospel. The generosity of God is, is marked by his gospel. Now, Paul asks two questions that we're going to look at, two overarching questions. He says on the, in the first part, you know, what can separate us, or no, not, not what, can, what can separate us, but, but who can bring a charge to us? He's going to be talking about our position, our, our placement in the kingdom of God. And then he's going to talk about who can separate us not only from our, our position or our place, but from the love of God. So look at verse 31. We didn't read it together, but, but we're going to read it now. Verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Now, when you're reading scripture, it's really important that, that you define your terms. And he says, what should we say to these things? And what does he mean when he says these things, right? You, you can't just step in the middle of a conversation and just assume that you know what you're talking about. But what he's been talking about over the last eight chapters, or the last five, six, seven, eight, four chapters has been the, the gospel and its implications, its blessings for our life. Right? Jesus comes and he lives this perfect life that you and I should have lived. He dies on the cross for our sins in our place defeating Satan, sin, and death, rising again and offering eternal life to anyone who would trust in him. And when we put our trust, our faith in him, we receive some blessings. And so he, through chapters 5 through 8, begins to talk about what those things look like. So if you were to go, you don't have to go there now. You can write it down or you can go if you want. In, in chapter 5, he talks about it and he says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. 
Paul says, since we have been given a, a right standing with God, we are, we are at peace with God. You and I, one of our greatest problems apart from, apart from Christ is that we are enemies of God. Paul tells us in another place that we are children of wrath, that you and I, because of our sin, because of our, our wickedness, our, our decisions to disobey God, we are at odds with God. And yet God, through Jesus Christ, justifies us. It's, it's like, I used to explain this to my youth when I was a youth pastor. When you go to the, the carnival and, and they had the, you know, the strong man with like the leopard, whatever, it's supposed to be like Tarzan, and he's got the, the head cut out. And then you step up into it, and now it's funny because you're not that guy, but, but you get to take a picture and be that guy. That's what God does for us. We have this picture of perfection in Jesus Christ, and when we're justified, we step into that, and God doesn't see us any longer. He sees Christ in his perfection. We are justified, and because of that, we have peace with God. In, in verse 8 of chapter 5, it says, But God shows us love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It's not when you were at your best, when, when your nose was clean and your, your shirt was pressed, that, that God decided you're the one. No, well, while we were yet sinners, God said, I'm going to save them. We have the love of God exhibited in, God's, in Christ's death. He goes on in chapter 6, and I'm just, I'm just going over a number of things, but you could dig deeper. It says that we were buried with Christ in, in chapter 6, verse 4, in order that, we, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. You and I, we are not just improvements, but we have new life. Is that good news for anyone? You get a new start. You get a, you get a clean slate. And because of the justification that we just talked about, it's a clean slate that stays clean. It says that, that we are new in Christ. The old has passed away, he says in another place. The new has come. It says that we were united with Christ in his death in order that we might be united with him in resurrection life. We have a hope that extends beyond today. I could keep going. In chapter 8, he says this. There's now, therefore, he, he had talked about sin and, and the law, how, how Jesus had overcome the rules of the law. He had obeyed the rules of the law so that as we trust in him, it's almost like we had obeyed the rules of the law. And the law which condemns no longer condemns us. And he says in verse 1, he says, there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This is good news. And so he's been laying these things out and he says in chapter 8, verse 31, what shall we say to these things? What should we, how should we respond to that? And he, he kind of sums it up and he says, if God is for us, right, and he's, he shows that he's for us in the justification of God, he shows that he's for us in, in adopting us, he shows that he's for us by giving love to us and expressing that love in Jesus Christ. He shows his love for us in, in taking away our condemnation. If God is for us, who can be against us? And if we were all in middle school, we'd say, no one, because we don't understand rhetorical questions. When I was a youth pastor, constant, I'd present a rhetorical question about four kids would answer. Three of them would be wrong. It's okay, though. This is what discipleship is. No, they were smart. But he says, if, if God is forced, who can be against us? And we could all say together, no one. No one. And he goes on and he says, he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us, how will he not also with him, give us all things. Graciously give us all things. You see what I said at the beginning? God is a gracious and, and generous God. 
As you're walking out this Christian life, you're never going to come to the place where you're like, oh, no, I don't have what I need to accomplish what God has set before me. Now, if anyone's paying attention, I imagine some of you have thought to yourself, there have been plenty of moments where I felt like I didn't have what I needed. I didn't have my keys. I didn't have the money for that bill. I didn't have a car. I didn't have... But what Paul is saying is not that we will have whatever we want or whatever we think we need. Uh, I, I was taking a class in counseling uh, a n- number of years back, and it was interesting. They, they talked about counseling as, as helping people get from point A to point e, B in their life. Now, the challenge is when, so, when a counselee comes in, maybe you've been counseled or, or you are a counselor, you know that someone comes in and they're at point A, and they have a point B. They have a point B. But as the counselor, and as a Christian counselor, your goal is to try to discern by the Spirit and by Scripture, what's God's point B? See, that's the distinction that Paul is making. He's going to graciously give us all things for whatever, not our, our point B, but, but God's point B. So he who did not spare his own son, is going to give us all things. He's a generous God to get us to his point B. Who can, who can be against us? He goes on and he says, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Have you ever, have you ever been driving? Don't raise your hands. Have you ever been driving and you see the lights and you start to panic and your hands start to sweat? You're like, I'm probably doing something wrong right now. Some of you, you're like, I know I'm doing something wrong. <laughs> right? You have that moment, and you're like, oh, no, what charges are going to come to me? But in life, sometimes we can, we can experience that, right? We come into a situation. We come into a circumstance. We hear someone say something. They press against us. We come against some opposition, and we begin to, our hands begin to sweat because it seems like someone's going to bring a charge against us. But Paul is saying, no, 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 no. No one brings a charge against God's elect, right? Let's, let's say it together. What is rhetorical? We're going to make explicit. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? No one. Amen. It's God who justifies. It's God who justifies. He keeps going. He says, who is to condemn? Who is to condemn? No one. Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised More than that, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. I can imagine that it makes God angry when the enemy brings condemnation against us. It makes God angry when people bring condemnation against us. Do you know why? Because it took the death of his son to erase that condemnation. So for anyone to stand and say, you're still condemned, you're still guilty, you're still under sin, is to say the work of Christ is meaningless in your life. He says, who can condemn? No one. Christ is the one who died. And he didn't just die. He was raised. And he wasn't just raised. He was raised to the right hand of God. The picture is of of God the Father and God the Son together uh, running the, the universe, ruling and reigning. You know, uh, the, the, can you imagine what it would be like to live in, in the White House with kids? And just the kids getting into all kinds of things. You know, for me, uh, I, I think that I would struggle, and, and, and I've always 
tended to struggle with this. Even in areas where I had authority, I didn't want to get into trouble. I remember working in uh, Chantilly, and, and they had snacks for the staff. It's a good thing. I like snacks. You can probably tell. Um, but I, I, I was sheepish about getting the snacks. Because I was like, I don't know. Maybe they're for me. I don't know. Maybe they're for me. I don't know. What, what Paul is saying here is, is there's so much that God has done for you. You have access. You have availability. You have, your condemnation has been taken away. You don't need to be sheepish about this. This is why he goes point after point after point. He says, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. Not more than that. He, he's the one who was raised. More than that. He's at the right hand of God. And he's in charge. And if God's in charge, you can get those snacks. <laughs> those snacks of sanctifying grace. Not those snacks of Ferraris and your own things. If you're Christ's, then Christ is for you. And if Christ is for you, then ultimately no one can be against you. But there's more, there's more here in God's generosity than God just kind of being for us, being on our team. He's not just for us, he's not just on our team, but he loves us. You know, there are a lot of people in this room that, you know, we're on the same team, but there's only one wife of of Eddie in this room. And we share a kind of love that that you guys are nice and I like you a lot, but we don't have we don't have that kind of love. That's that's an exclusive thing. And here we see that God has an exclusive love for his people. He goes on and he says in verse 35, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? No one. And he and he, he begins to Lay out the things that we might think about. What, what can separate me from the love of God? How, how can I be separated from God's love, from the expressions of God's love? Maybe there's something in my life that, that could separate, that might bring a gap between me and God and me, me experiencing the love of Christ. He goes and he says, shall tribulation or distress or persecution, can troubles at work separate you from the love of God? Could problems in your marriage separate you from the love of God? Distress, persecution, as I said, famine, nakedness, can poverty separate you from the love of God? Danger, the sword. And he says in verse 36, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all day long and we are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. You see, Paul is a realist. He recognizes that, that the people that he's speaking to are experiencing real suffering. He, he knows this. This is, in fact, the story of Paul. He was persecuting the early church, and in chapter 9, he gets converted. Uh, chapter 9 of Acts, he gets converted. But before that, he stood as the first martyr, Stephen, was giving his, his, his swan song of a sermon which was basically, you guys are guilty. It was a powerful sermon. And they, the people around him got so angry that they, they stoned him to death. And, and it says that a young Saul, or Paul, stood there and approved of the execution. Right? This, is, this is the background of the man who's writing Romans. 
And yet he says, as, he, as I, I imagine he might think back to Stephen. He might think back to some of the men and women that he had persecuted. He might think back even at this point to his own life. And he says, shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger, shall any of these separate me from the love that I've experienced and I've received and I've seen uh, in Christ Jesus? And he says, for your sake, we're being killed all day long. We're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. He knows that they've experienced this. He's not saying, if you come to Jesus, then everything's going to be okay. He doesn't say, if you come to Jesus, you'll get everything you need in this life. If you come to Jesus, you'll get all the health, all the wealth, all the prosperity that you want. Now, God will certainly promise, and he has promised that he will give you everything you need to accomplish his purposes in your life. But again, it's his point B, not our point B. And he says, can any of these things separate us from God? Can any of these things derail us from getting to his point B? And the amazing news is, no. Verse 37, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. We are more than conquerors. Even though he admits to the reality that we live in a broken world, affected by our sin and the sins of others, even though we suffer, even though we experience pain, even though as you get older you experience experience the the curse of death creeping into your body, even though we experience brokennesses in in our relationships, even though we experience loss and suffering and difficulty at work, can any of this undo what God has accomplished through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ? The answer is no. Nothing separates us. And he says, in fact, we're, we're more than conquerors, which is a weird thing to say. Right? If you go to a, a soccer game, you've got winners and you've got losers. And you don't point at the losers, but you, you celebrate with the winners, right? We won. But no one's saying, I'm more than a winner. If they were, you, you'd say, settle down, buddy. Calm down. I'm glad you won. All you get is the trophy. There's nothing above winner. But he says, no, we are more than conquerors. What does that mean? He goes on and he, he begins to explain. He says, for I'm sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. He says, nothing separate us from the love of Christ Jesus our Lord. Not rulers, not mayors, not presidents, not congressmen, not kings. They're all subject to Jesus Christ. Not things present, no danger, no uncertainty, no lack. They're all subject to Jesus Christ. Not things in the future, not our anxiety or our fears or our doubt or uncertainty or our five-year plan, which has never worked out, or a 10-year plan, or, or uh, the, the things that we don't know about the people around us. It's all subject to Jesus Christ. And in case we, we had some sort of category of saying, yeah, I believe all that, but what about this? He goes on and he says, no power, no, no height, no, nor depth, nor anything in creation. I could go down to the bottom of the ocean where things are slimy and gross and scary and they glow. And would that separate me from the love of Christ Jesus? No. Why are we more than conquerors in Jesus Christ? Because when most people lose, they lose. But nothing can make us lose in an ultimate sense. When we lose, we win. He had said in 
in verse 28, he says this, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. To put it another way, for those who love God and are on God's path from point A to his point B, there's nothing that's going to derail you. And there's nothing that God is not going to give you to get to that point B. Now, in the process, he's going to take your point B and kind of adjust it to get to his point B by the grace of God. And that can be a painful process of disillusionment, despair, confusion, submission. But there's nothing that comes against us that isn't worked for our good. That, that difficult coworker at work that you're just like, hmm, I know I'm supposed to forgive. I know I'm supposed to think positive, kind things. I know I'm supposed to pray for this person, but have you met them? He's there for your good. That spouse that you loved so much and they were so sweet and cute and now those things you used to love about them just drive you mad and those things you didn't know about them because God hid them because you wouldn't have married them if you'd known and that you now know. <laughs> I'm not talking about my life. I'm just imagining, but clearly I, I uh, struck a nerve. God works those things for our good. Those, those difficult conversations with people where they say, you know, I see this in your life that probably needs to get addressed. A conversation with, with pastor so-and-so or mentor so-and-so where they say, you know what, I, I love you a ton, but there's this thing in your life that I really think God wants to address. And you're like, I don't like how that feels. Oh, just tell me I'm awesome. Please. It's there for our good. God's working these things for our good. That physical issue in your body that you're praying about, which God calls you to pray for. He calls us to pray for healing. He invites us to ask, but he doesn't always heal us. And, and you're praying and you're asking, you're praying and you're asking, you're praying and you're asking, and you're not seeing God move. It's because God's working something else for your good. He's working something else for your good. Your trials, your suffering, your pain, your failure, your sin, by the grace of God, because of his generosity in his son, it all contributes to our good. We are more than conquerors because when we lose, we win. Now, before Latimer and Ridley, who I talked about at the beginning, were executed, one of the officials was kind of pleading with Ridley, asking him to recant, asking him to, to change his confession. He told him that if, if he would deny, if he would not deny the truth that he saw in the Bible that, that he was going to be executed. If you would just, Ridley, if you would just recant from these teachings, which all they were doing was saying that the Bible is the ultimate authority. And, and, and there had been a lot of things that, that the church at the time had, had kind of put in place and added and, and obscured the gospel. And they were, they were holding up the truth of the, the Bible and saying, this is my ultimate authority. And he, the, the official was saying, if you would just recant... To this, Ridley replied, so long as the breath is in my body, I will never deny my Lord Christ and his known truth. God's will be done in me. And, and he again, he was not saying this at Sunday school. He was not saying this outside as he ate donuts with his friends at church. He said this at his execution when he was chained with a metal chain that gets really hot when it burns. 
with a fire about to be lit around him and his compatriot. Both men understood how generous God was. Both men knew that even death could not separate them from the love of God in Jesus Christ. Both men died in the fires of persecution. And both men have received their reward in heaven. How would you live today, family, if you knew that you couldn't lose? If, if you could get a, a glimpse of what God's point B was, and you knew that God was, you were on a, uh, on a, a nonstop trip to God's point B. There, there, are no, there are no diversions. What would you do differently? How would you love your neighbor if you knew that even if he rejected you, God had not rejected you? How would you give up your time and energy if you knew that one missed appointment or failed task would not prevent you from seeing and celebrating your Savior, Jesus Christ, one day? How would you spend your money if you knew that God would richly supply all that you needed for this life and the life to come? Family, we're going to be talking about this, but God is generous. And I'm going to be calling you to generosity inviting you into the character of God. Not because, uh, you know, it's summertime and we need to, to get everyone to, to do their tithing. No, there is something about stepping into this aspect of the character and nature of God that we experience something about who God is that we would never experience if we weren't willing to be generous as he's been generous. And so today I ask you to, to meditate on how God has been generous to you. Neither height nor depth nor things present nor things to come, none of this stuff will separate you from Christ. That thing that popped up in your mind just now, it's not going to separate you from Christ. God has a point B for you. And he's going to give you everything that you need to get to that point B. And in the process, he's going to be with you. He's not going to leave you. He's not going to forsake you. If you've trusted in Jesus Christ, he's going to get you there. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you that you love us, and I thank you that you are generous. God, I thank you that, that you don't call us in, in becoming godly to do anything except for become like you. And that you, you are the ultimate giver. That you, you gave the most valuable thing. You gave your son, Jesus, that you gave your life. God, I pray that we would apprehend that in a way that, that moves our heart. This would not just be some sort of mental exercise, but it would be something that stirs our hearts to live differently. If you never trusted in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, if you never received this generous gift that God has given, I would, I would ask you to do so today. Would you respond by trusting in Jesus today? If, if you want to do that, just raise your hand. There's nothing magical in raising your hand but it's a way of expressing physically what, what you're doing in your heart. Once you raise that hand, you just put it back down. Thank you, I see those hands. And just pray this with me. God, I want to turn away from everything I know to be sin. And I want to trust in you. I thank you, Jesus, that you died for my sins, that you rose again, defeating Satan, sin, and death, and that you've offered eternal life to me as I trust in you. God, help me to know what your point B is. 
and help me to pursue that with all my might. God, I pray that you would grant every person in this room all that they need to get to where you're taking them. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Love you, family.